following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to start this morning. Genesis 3. We're in a series. We started it last week called Redemptive Relationships. And last week, if you were here, and if not, you will, this will be uh, just a way of uh, telling you what we talked about last week. We talked about how we were created as humans in the image of God, and in one sense, this means that we were created for relationships, created for community. Like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit live three in one, yet one. They are the Trinity, the Godhead, living together in perfect harmony, different jobs, yet in complete unity, perfect love and together, diverse yet unified, different yet living together in joy. And one of the things that we saw from this was that when God made us in his image, it meant that we would represent him as humans on the earth of how, how the Godhead lives in unity, harmony, and love. So in a sense, being made in his image means we're representing the Godhead, representing how they dwell together in perfect unity, love, and in harmony. And when we do this together, we talked about how we bring God great glory, and it reveals to our, our, to our world that Jesus is our king. We, we live in a very divided world, and we recognize that when we walk out in unity together, we represent Jesus as our king, showing there's a unique power in the gospel. But what's intriguing about that, knowing what our relationships were like before the fall, that we were supposed to represent God in unity, harmony, and in love, we recognize that the problem is we don't experience that in real life. You don't have to go very far in the history of the United States, just back a few months ago, to the summer of 2020 and just look at the terror and the riots that went on throughout our country. Go back to any election year and look at the fighting and the, the disunity that goes on in our Land. All of us experience conflict and frustration. It's everywhere. The normal relational experience is fighting in our homes, fighting in our jobs, and fighting in our communities. Furthermore, loneliness and isolation is prevalent everywhere. It seems that so few people have people they can really trust and be intimate with and really be able to lay their lives on the line for certain people. The average Facebook user has 338 Facebook friends, yet we're lonely and isolated. Why? That's the question we want to look at today. Why is it that so few of us live in relationships that mirror the unity of the Godhead? Why are we the most interactive generation Yet the loneliness. It's interesting, in 2015, I preached this same sermon. This one's going to have a few different changes to it because of the years that we're in. But in 2015, I did some study on on the aspect of loneliness because I wanted to understand what was going on in our culture. And here's a quote from that sermon from 2015. And just tell me if this isn't a little bit prophetic. The quote was this, Why is it, as sociologists tell us, that by 2020... The most similar trait of humans will be loneliness. I don't think anybody in 2015 thought that COVID was going to come in 2020. Loneliness, despair, social distancing, isolation has literally filled our world. I have a dear friend of mine who's a pastor of a church in Sydney, Australia. He was telling me recently as they're coming out of the lockdowns 
that now the, the federal government is deciding that the mental illness that it was created by the lockdowns is a worse problem than COVID itself. Something that we've talked about in the past. They're seeing suicides on the rise among teenagers and college students. Mental disorders everywhere. A society is filled with isolated, lonely people. Almost two years of protocols, what has it produced? But thankfully, God has an answer. And this morning, I want to talk about that. I want to understand why we're lonely. And I want to understand as well why we don't live in harmony with one another. I want to understand why this is such a challenge with us. So this morning, let's stand together. We're going to read two passages of Scripture. It's a total of 26 verses, so don't freak out, right? I mean, we're not reading Psalm 119, okay? We're reading 26 verses. Genesis 3, 1 through 13 is where we're going to begin. Genesis 3... 1 through 13. This is the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you, gave, whom, whom you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now flip over to Genesis 4 and let's read verses 1 through 13 there as well. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed to the ground, from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. 
You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that your word is true and we need eyes, spiritual eyes, to understand the need that we're in and understand the sober moment that our society is in. But Father, more importantly than knowing the problem, we need you to open our eyes in wonder to the solution found in Christ. And Father, to do that, we, we need your spirit. So would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you reveal to us the truth of your word? Would you comfort us where needed? Would you convict us where needed? And would you help us be people that represent you well in this earth? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you're new with us, you should have got a, a bulletin when you walked in the door. There's an outline on the back of that bulletin. And there's a big idea. The big idea is usually the kind of the, the thought that we're trying to hit on from the passages of Scripture that we have just read. And here's the big idea for the day. <clears throat> Sin always separates, but Jesus always moves toward reconciliation. Sin always separates, but Jesus always moves toward reconciliation. So let's look at the first point there in your outline which is sin's effects on relationships. So in the book of Genesis, we're in the Garden of Eden. Man and woman are living blissfully together. There's no arguing, fighting, and no marital disagreements. I mean, can you, can you absolutely imagine, can you imagine, right? I mean, I mean, can you imagine you never have to say, no, sweetie, I, I, didn't, mean, I didn't mean that. You really do look nice in that dress. I mean, imagine, how's my hair? It's, okay, that's a trick question, right? I mean, Looks good. Looks good. great. What, what, what am I supposed to say? None of that. Can you imagine this moment? There's, there's God-like unity and love happening in this paradise scene, and Genesis 3, sin happens. The serpent tempted Eve. Adam joined her in her deception, and tragedy hits this paradise scene. And when sin entered, notice the response of Adam and Eve. In verse 7, it says, they covered their sin with fig leaves. In verse 8, they tried to hide from God. Verse 10, they were afraid of God. Verses 12 and 13, they blame shift to someone else. I mean, can you, can you just imagine for a moment? Here Adam and Eve have been walking together, hand in hand, joyfully walking. Then they sin. God shows up and says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam just instantly drops her hand and goes, she did it. Right? I mean, the woman you gave me. And not only that, he's not blaming her, he's blaming God. And then Eve says, the serpent made me do it. Here we see the terrible consequences of sin on the harmony and unity that humans were supposed to be experiencing. Rather than joyfully walking with God and one another, Adam and Eve are now hiding from God in fear and blaming each other and others for their sin. It's really sad. But notice sin's effect on how they relate to one another. Our very first glimpse we get of the first family life is in Genesis chapter 4, and it's disturbing, isn't it? Cain, the older brother, the one who's supposed to be protecting the younger brother, rises up in anger and in jealousy and kills his little brother Abel. 
The first family is ravaged by sin, jealousy, anger, and eventual murder. Not to mention, they don't even care for one another, and they don't feel any sense of responsibility to do so. Check out Cain's reply in chapter 4, verse 9, when God says, where's your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer from God is, yeah. So where's your brother? You can feel the disdain. It's palpable. Cain is banned to be a fugitive and a wanderer, a loner, all by himself. And eventually Cain's family line dies out in the Genesis flood. From these two stories of the first family, we see some things about relationships after the fall, after man has sinned. And as a matter of fact, these two stories seem to encapsulate much of our own experiences, don't they? Marital fights, family feuds, jealousy, Anger, pride, or all seem to be our normal response to one another. Created to live in peace, unity, and love for one another, we are filled with sin and its consequences. And the first thing that you can, that we learn from these stories is that sin causes us to live for ourselves rather than for God's glory. Notice with me for a moment how, what the Bible says about Eve's temptation in chapter 3 verse 6. It says, she saw it was good for food. It was a delight to her eyes. It was desirable to make her wise. Those are all phrases of self-focus. Rather than being concerned with what God thought, what God's rules are, what God's desires are, Eve is consumed with her own desires, her own passions, and fulfilling her own needs. We see this in Cain in chapter 4 as well. Rather than obeying God and bringing God the appropriate sacrifice that God desired, Cain brought his own sacrifice to fit with his own desires and his own passions. He seems to be more concerned with self-fulfillment than with fulfilling what God wanted. Now this is so important because last week when we dove into this series on relationships, we said this, that to thrive in human relationships... Relationships must be primarily concerned for the glory of God, not our own personal needs or desires. Relationships must be primarily concerned for the glory of God and not our own personal desires. And right here in the beginning with Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve, what do we see? We see them loving their desires and their needs above the glory of God. And friends, that's what sin does to us. It causes us to be self-seeking rather than God-glorifying. The creative mind, which reveals God's creativity, begins to create primarily for their own glory and their own honor. The powerful athlete who's created by God to reveal God's might and strength and God's awesomeness is now beginning to do things primarily to be seen on SportsCenter's top ten highlights or to what the phrase would be, to get what is mine. The musician who reveals the beauty and rhythm in the Godhead begins to create music primarily for the purpose of getting Grammys or the next record deal. And in human relationships, which are to reveal the glory of God and the unity found in the Godhead, they become primarily about making us feel good, meeting our personal needs and accomplishing something for us rather than for the glory of God and being a benefit to our fellow man. James says it very clearly what our problem is. He wrote in chapter 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Is it not the passions that are at war within you? You desire, yet you do not have, so you murder. It's sinful desires within us that make relationships sour. Now we know this temptation. Every one of us know it while living in relationships. If someone doesn't meet our needs, we're done. If someone hurts us, we're finished with them. We're out. We're self-seeking more than God-glorifying, and we all know it, and we see the results from it all around us. Sin tempts us to live for ourselves and for our needs above God's glory. But that's not all that sin does. Sin causes us to be unreconciled to God. Notice in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve hiding from God when they used to walk with him in intimacy. In terrified fear of God when they used to enjoy God every moment of every day. Being cast out of God's presence when they could have lived with him forever. No longer could they enjoy the continual abiding presence of their creator. They're cast out to fend for themselves and build on their own. It's terrible. Cain was cast out by God to live as a fugitive and a wanderer, a loner. Even though God put a mark on him later, which you read about Cain's life, that that people wouldn't harm him, it's not a mark that Cain is a child of God. Cain was separated from God because of his sin. So hear me clearly. Sin always separates us from God. Sin causes us to be unreconciled with God. Rather than living in a peaceful, harmonious, unified relationship with God, our sin puts us at war with God. Every one of us is born in this state because of the sin in our lives. We're separated from God. We're all guilty. We've all sinned against God and in need of reconciliation with God. And if we were to die in that place of being unreconciled to God, we'd be cast out into eternal hell, separated forever from God's mercy, love, and grace. And listen, if that's you this morning, and you know that you are unreconciled to God because of your sin, we would plead with you to trust Christ. We'll talk about this more later, but the only answer, the only solution to being reconciled to God is Jesus. And we'd call you to put your trust in Christ. But listen, even as Christians, sin does something really interesting to us. It causes us to run from God rather than to God. And we might do it in a variety of ways. I mean, take Adam and Eve. They, they tried to sew fig leaves together. It was like their ability to cover what they were doing. It was like their hard work, their good works to do what, to make it right. We all do the same things. We sin, we know we've sinned, and rather than running to God through Christ to be forgiven by simple confession of our sin, we say to ourselves, if I just give more, if I pray more, if I do better, more deeds, if I will accomplish something more for God, God will make me right with Him, rather than seeing the simple answer found in the powerful work of, of Jesus to reconcile us to God. And we know this temptation. We might be captured by some particular sin, and we'll do everything we can to not be reminded of it. The moment we sin, we start running from God. So we won't go to church. We don't want to hang out with people that we know are Christian. We don't want to be around people that have higher moral standards than us. We avoid people who are who we know really care about us. If somebody contacts us to check in, we get angry because we don't want somebody caring for us while we're in our sin. When the best answer is not to run from God, but to run to God. But friends, that's what sin does. Sin always separates us from God, 
and it always tempts us to run from God. But sin continues, though. It also separates us from one another. Notice how this happened in the first family. We mentioned it earlier in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, when Adam and Eve blame-shifted their sin to one another or to others. Adam said, God, this woman you gave me, right? And I don't mean to get into your world, dudes, but I can imagine at some point you went, why did God give me this gal? Or others cast it out to our own, our, something outside of us, like Eve, the serpent made me do it. Could it be Satan, like the old church lady used to say on Saturday Night Live, right? Casting our blame shifting, our sin onto someone else. But in chapter 3, verse 16, we see even further that there was a separation in the marriage union. We see this little phrase that God says to the, to the serpent or to the woman that her desire will be for her husband. And later it says, but he will crush you. I hope you're aware that one of the curses of sin in each of us, gender together, for women, it is the desire to usurp the authority of their husband. And for men, it's the desire to rise up in anger and crush their wives. Do you not see that everywhere, all over our culture today? Women fighting against their own nature and men fighting against their own nature. Sin has its consequences. It separates the marriage union, but it also separates families. This could not be more clear, but in Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother. Let me think about that for a moment. A family, mom and dad, who are living in perfect harmony, sin against God, and they're watching the effect of their sin upon their children when their oldest son rises up and kills his younger brother. What a drastic change. And Cain, rather than seeing himself as a friend and a protector and a brother to Abel, caring for him, Cain kills him and then sarcastically says, I'm not his keeper. Why would you ask me this question? This is more than a statement of frustration. This statement from Cain is the heart of all of us who are so self-seeking that we don't care about our fellow man. And the crazy thing is, this is in all of us. It's in every one of us. From marital discord to family fights to relationship separations to every war in the history of the universe. We're sinful people, we're lonely people, we're angry people, and we know it. Sin has separated us. Sometimes it's our own doing, and sometimes it's a doing of others. But the bottom line is, sin always separates us from one another. Our natural sinful tendency is to move away from one another rather than toward one another. Anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, blame shifting, suspicion, pride become our natural, normal, sinful way of responding to one another. And sin wants to keep it this way. Sin wants to keep us separated. So we, we start making up excuses. I mean, we say things like, oh, they'll never change. What's the point of trying? I've tried. I've tried this before. It never worked. They won't listen to my concerns. Even if I tell them, I've told them time and time again, but they never pay attention. It's so exhausting. Why must I keep trying? All the while, sin just keeps us separated. See, sin doesn't want us to pursue harmony, peace, and unity. Sin wants us separated because it's motivated by the enemy of God and the author of chaos and confusion and division. 
Satan himself. And Satan tempts us using our personal sin to keep us separated. Sin always separates us from God and from one another. Really bad news. Now we could go home or we could say, let's look for our hope because we have remarkable hope. Our only hope in this problem is that the reverse, the curse of sin could be reversed. That's our only hope. So here we are in dire straits because sin has separated us from God and from one another. Sin has flipped our desires from God's glory to our own self-interest. We all feel it and we all know it, know it from experience. But we're not left without hope. We see it in Genesis chapter 3, and that's the next point, is the promise and a picture of God's plan for restoration. Look with me again at the promise found in Genesis 3.15. Now we've seen this throughout our Advent series. We looked at it again last week, but it always bears repeating. Listen, from Genesis 3, listen, I'm containing myself to not take an entire year and preach on the ramifications of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're just doing six weeks, right? We could take a full year. We could take longer because that verse, on that verse, everything hinges. If the promise of God in Genesis 3, 15 is not fulfilled, we are doomed. But in Genesis 3, 15, we see this promise. That a champion would come to conquer our enemy and save us. He would come to reverse the curse of our sin. And we know from the Bible, as we saw it in our Advent series, that this person is Jesus Christ. That Jesus came from heaven to earth to rescue us from the great separator Satan and from our own sin. He came to be our faithful representative before God, like Adam before him was supposed to do, but failed He came to restore us to God and restore us to one another. He came to reverse the trend of our selfish desires so that we could move toward one another, not away from one another. He came to make our sin his very own and forgive us of it. He came that that he might present us to God pure and blameless and forgiven. What glorious news that is. He came so that we could be made right with God and we could have the power to be made right with one another. That's the promise. But look at the picture with me in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 21, when we're told that God made garments of animal skin for Adam and Eve to cover them. Now, It's intriguing, isn't it? You can imagine Adam and Eve kind of stepping out from behind the clothing room and showing God their new garments. Like, these are the garments we've made to cover our sin. And God says, that that ain't going to do it. And then God takes an animal, sacrifices an animal, and he clothes them. In the Bible, this is the very first blood sacrifice. It's the first blood sacrifice that covers sin. It's a picture of what Jesus accomplished For us, he came to die in our place that we might be covered in his righteousness and clothed in his right standing so we could be restored to God. In a sense, Jesus came to give up his life and die as the Lamb of God to take away our sin and reverse the curse of sin upon our lives. See, in Genesis 3, the worst chapter in the Bible about the humanity of the, the human nature of man, we see a promise, 
the promise and we see a picture of God's plan for restoration and it's found in Jesus. But what's intriguing though is that plan tells us something about God's plan for our relationships. Notice first that God moves toward us in reconciliation. I want you to notice that. God moves toward us in reconciliation. I find this remarkably powerful that in the middle of the curses of sin, God had already set the stage for reconciliation. I mean, do you see what I'm talking about? God, the offended party, was already at work promising and giving us a picture that his son was coming. In other words, God moves toward us by sending his son Jesus to us and for us. Now let, let this settle in for a moment. Jesus came. Jesus came. God, the offended party, sent Jesus his son to restore us to God. God made the first Move. You know what this means? It means that God didn't hesitate to deal with our sin. God didn't hesitate to act on his plan of reconciliation even while we were sinning. He already had it in mind what he was doing. God came. So, so listen again. If you don't know Jesus, listen very clearly. Jesus came for you. He came for you. Jesus came because God so loved you that he came, that he gave his only begotten son for you, that you would have forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. God always moves toward us first in reconciliation. We love because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God moves toward us in reconciliation. The offended party moved first. That's remarkable. Because that tells us something. It tells us that God's plan for reconciliation is that second point there. Is that God moves toward us so that we can move toward others in reconciliation. See, friends, listen. Where sin always separates, God has a plan and he's given us the power for reconciliation. I think this is one of the ways that we reveal the transformative power of the gospel at work in us to a world outside. For those who are Christians who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our King, God calls us to move toward, toward one another, not away from one another. Notice just in the book of Romans alone... Notice the direction or the, the, the way we go in Ro- just these verses alone. Notice what it's angling at. If it possible with you, be at peace with all men, Romans 12, 18. Romans 14, 19, let's pursue peace and mutual upbuilding. Romans 15, 7, welcome others as you have been welcomed by Christ. Notice that these are always moving toward others, not away from them. Now, throughout this series, we're going to talk more about this. We're going to talk more about the plan. How did God put this together? What does he want us to do as people? How do we obey this and do it well, trusting in the power of Christ at work? But for today, I want you to get this deep into your soul, deep into your soul. God came to rescue us to himself so that we might be reconcilers in his world. 
Jesus came to save you, to reconcile you to God, and give you the power to be a reconciler in this world. Why else would Jesus in Matthew 5 say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they're called what? The sons of God. Why else would Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in a very explicit, very clear text, this is not subtle, that we are ministers of reconciliation. Why, why would he say those things? God came, Jesus came to reconcile us to himself so that we might be reconcilers in a Genesis 3 world that is crazy. Last week in our sermon review and Sunday review, one of the brothers brought up a point in the sermon that he said, you know, I don't think we went far enough with that. And he said, he said the point that you made was sometimes in conflict, conflict is just a breadcrumb reminding us that we're not from here, that we're made for another place. He said, I think that's true. But I think there's something else that we should say into this. Church conflict is a unique opportunity to help us reveal the power and the plan of God at work in this world to the rest of the world. Have you ever thought that maybe that little conflict you have with your spouse, that moment that you had a conflict with your kid and you work toward reconciliation and then you walk out hand in hand to the park together is revealing something of the glory of Christ. Or the moment when you're at the park and your kid disobeys you and you as a parent then have to deal with the conflict of that in front of other people is revealing is revealing the power of Christ at work in you. That, that's remarkable news. You can certainly say in a group this size, imagine, just imagine, if we continue to walk out in unity and in joy and in peace by living and believing in the power of Christ to keep us unified in the plan of Christ to keep working this out together, when conflict arises, we continue to work toward unity together, what that reveals to an outside world. God moves toward us so that we can move toward one another in reconciliation. This is why church splits, fights, Christian conflicts are so sad and they are gut-wrenching. It is not the way God worked for us, and it's not the way he works in us. Christ has come to not only restore us to God, but to transform us so that we can be restored to one another and even, even to our enemies. That's transformative power. Now finally, though, through the power of Christ at work in us, God transforms our sinful desires. See, here, here's the truth. I, I would probably bet in a crowd this size that maybe one or two of us are probably thinking of somebody right now out there or in here that we'd rather move away from than move toward. You know who they are right now. Matter of fact, if you walked into Fred Meyer right now and you saw them, you're praying that they're going to the produce aisle because you're going to the coffee aisle. We all feel a little bit hopeless, a little challenged. Maybe for some of us, just downright angry. But here's the challenge. I want you to hear this clearly. If Jesus is your Savior and He's your King, He has promised to transform you through His Spirit, which is at work in you, to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus. And if Jesus came to you, to be reconciled to you, he came also to work in you that you can be reconciled to others. He came to transform you from the inside out so it begins to act out in a certain way. This is why I've said so many times that, listen, 
Husbands and wives, their, their dearest affection better not be themselves. Their dearest affection had better be, had better be Christ as king. Because as a Christian husband and a Christian wife, if Jesus is your king, then what Jesus says goes in your home. And there's no conflict, no issue that you can't try to work through together for the glory of God. God transforms our internal sinful desires to make them look something Christ-like. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and was raised. That's what Christ does in us. He transforms our desires, our passions, and gives us courage to face very painful moments and, listen, very hard people. But he also transforms us to love God so we can love others better. C.S. Lewis put it like this. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest... I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. See, our tendency is to think, if I submit myself to God and do what he asked me to do, things are going to get worse. If I go to that person and confess my sin, they're going to disrespect me and not think anything about me, rather than the opposite being true. God transforms us to live for his glory and his interests rather than our own and helps us to love other people better. Jesus restores us to God to live in relational unity and love like we see in the God in the Godhead. And when sin separates from us from one another, here's what he does. He gives us the power and the plan to pursue reconciliation with them. I mean, why, why would I not go to somebody I've sinned against or not forgive somebody who sinned against me when God has come for me and he's already forgiven me way worse sin than those people sinned against me for? When you understand the power of the gospel at work and you understand that Christ came for you and the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of the gospel and you see yourself as the most sinful person in the room and you're amazed by the grace of God, let me tell you something, reconciliation won't be hard. Because you'll be so overwhelmed with the grace and power of God and the wonder of God, that he would love you at all, that when somebody comes and says, brother, I need to ask you to forgive me for, yes, already forgiven. Brother, I need to confront you on this issue of sin. Man, brother, listen, you don't even know the half of it, or even a third of it, or an ounce of it, but yes, I probably sinned against you at some point. Forgive me. Name it. There's no sense of us hanging on to our own sin. God knows it anyway, and that's why Jesus came. So listen, this morning we're going to close with prayer and action. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to pray for us for a couple things. Listen, if you've never trusted Christ, I'm going to pray for you this morning that you will trust Christ this morning, that you will just give your life to Jesus, that he is the only answer to be reconciled to God. But listen, if you have trusted Christ, but you know you're unreconciled to somebody, it could be a parent, a child, it could be a friend, an enemy, I'm going to pray that the Lord would increase your love for God and increase your love for others and help you, if possible, 
be reconciled to them. So we're going to pray, okay? Maybe this morning as well, the Lord just revealed something in your heart about an attitude that's wrong towards somebody. Right? Here's what I ask you to do with that nugget. I'm going to ask you to confess that to God and deal with that personally, but don't go to the person that you feel that about and ask them to forgive you for being bitter toward them. They're going to go, great, I thought we were good, man. Thanks. I had no idea that there's a problem. Okay, okay. You're, you're forgiven, right? Um, it, it, if you sinned against them with your mouth or your, yeah, confess that. But if it's an internal, you know, I've been angry at you for four years. Oh, okay. Okay, man. Very good. We just had coffee last week. Awesome. Love you. Love you too. Let's, you know, deal with that internally. Confess that to God. We'll talk more about how to deal with that later. And then as a church, listen, I want us to act. And here's how I want you to, I want you first, we've got to be a church that marvels at the gospel of Christ. I mean, you, you, we have got to be amazed that God would send Jesus at all. We've got to see ourselves as the most sinful people in the room. Marveling that God would pursue us for reconciliation. What that does then for us is we can't help but be reconciled to others. Marvel at the wonder of God coming for you. And then listen, if needed, you may need to go to somebody who's here and confess a sin to them that you've sinned against them and ask them to forgive you. If somebody does that this morning to you, I would just plead with you, your response doesn't need to be, okay, that's one of them. Can I just give you a list of a few others that you've come, you know, back here about two years ago, just, just simply say to them, you're forgiven. Why would I ever not forgive you when God has forgiven me so much? Or may, maybe it's just somebody that you think, I need to write them or come to go to them and say to them, I love you. I appreciate you. I think God, I'm glad God's at work in you. And you just need to speak those words of encouragement to somebody. Or maybe they're not here. And maybe you need to go home today. Maybe you just need to pen a letter to somebody. You need to write a letter pouring out your confession of sin and setting a time when you could maybe talk with them. Or maybe just that you're going to write a letter to say, I'm praying for you and here's what I'm praying for about you. I want you to know that I care about you. But listen, whatever it is that the Lord directs you in, I I want us to believe this. Believe it with all of our hearts. If Jesus came for us as the first step to reconcile us to God and reconcile us to one another, the Holy Spirit will empower us to act in such a way that reveals that redeeming work of Jesus going on in our lives. Remember, sin always separates But Jesus always moves toward reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we we want to be a church that marvels at the gospel. That the promise and the picture of Christ has been fulfilled. It is finished. Jesus has come. We love you because you first loved us. Father, help us to never lose sight of the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the work of Christ on our behalf, that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us because you loved us. 
And then, Father, would you, would you stir in us an appropriate heightened affection for you? I pray for friends that are here that, that, that don't know Christ. I just pray, Father, that you would bring them to Jesus right now. And if that's you and you don't know Jesus, listen, just simply say and acknowledge to Christ that you are a sinner and that Jesus, you acknowledge that Jesus died for your sin and that you want to follow him. So I pray for this person. I pray that you bring them to Christ. I, I pray for those of us who trusted Christ. And Lord, we can think of relationships that are unreconciled. And some, Lord, we, we've tried and we just, it just can't get through the walls. And Father, I pray you break down those obstacles and walls somehow and bring people to peace with one another. But Lord, if we haven't attempted, I pray that you'd help my Christian brother or sister, help them to go. Help them to humble themselves. Help them to open them the, the heart, the door of their heart to this individual and be reconciled to them. I pray you would do this. I, I pray, Father, that you would change our attitudes toward people by heightening our affection for you, marveling at your work toward us. And then, God, help us as a church. Help us, help us to be a body that, that practices these things well. You have been so kind to us. We have experienced such a sweet season of unity and harmony and joy. And yet, Father, because I'm present, because my friends are present, we have something in us that could hurt each other and hurt your church. And we pray protect us. And help us to trust in your power and in your plan for reconciliation, for the glory of God so that your name would be displayed so that father our world outside of us in little roseburg oregon would know that because of our unity they'd look at us and they'd say wow god didn't send you he did send jesus those people have a power in them that is so unique that reveals god so father help us to abound in this work for the glory of god the good of all people in the advancement of your gospel And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.